Well, good morning again, and welcome to any of you who are new to fellowship. Welcome, and I hope and pray that you have already been blessed and warmly welcomed uh, this morning. We're so glad that you're here and hope that you continue to be blessed as we move to the time of preaching and teaching uh, the Word of God, which is an important part of our worship together. Uh, I'm going to be returning uh, to a series on the book of Acts. Uh, We started, uh, I entitled this Witnesses, and we did Acts uh, chapters 1 through 8 back in the beginning of February, uh, back in the beginning of 2020, January, February, March, uh, for for several months there. And uh, when we stopped, I told you we'd probably, we'd come back to this book at some point. And so uh, we're doing that now, and I expect uh, that we will be in this book uh, through through May, we kind of worked through it for the first eight chapters, pretty much verse by verse, and uh, we'll do that again as we go, and we'll see how far we get. I, I have a plan uh, of how I think we'll far we'll get, but we'll see how that goes um, and see how how the Lord leads. Uh, but I, I don't expect I'll tell you this: I don't expect to finish the book by then. Um, but again, we'll go as far as we can, and and then if we need to, we'll come back. Uh, to it again uh, at some point. If you were uh, not a part of the church uh, at that time and uh, you did not hear any of those uh, messages, I just want to encourage you uh, to catch up with them online. They're all available online and it'll really help you if you're going to be with us going forward. It'll just help you with kind of understanding where we've been in, um, in this text. So uh, again, just encourage you to catch those uh, online. As we pick up in uh, chapter 9 of, of the book of Acts, we're going to be picking up uh, today with the story of, of Saul, uh, the account of Saul meeting Christ face to face. And he goes from persecutor to uh, a persecutor of the church to apostle of Christ. And, and, and as we think about this, uh, this story, before we actually get into the text, as we think about Saul's transformation, I wanted to start by just telling you uh, about a young man who lived uh, through the 1700s. Um, he, uh, he was a, a sailor and he lived uh, a life of, of rebellion and uh, a life of drunkenness. And he, uh, he even worked on, on slave ships and he would help to capture slaves and then sell them. And eventually he, he became the captain of his own slave ship, which is something he was hoping to do. But eventually this, this young man, this wicked young man, as he himself described uh, himself, he met Jesus and he gave his life to Christ and he was changed and transformed and later in life, he became friends with people like John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and William Wilberforce, and he eventually became part of a major evangelical movement and actually became part of how uh, the slave trade uh, was changed. His name is John Newton, and here's what his tombstone reads. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. He saw himself as someone who was laboring to destroy the faith or the gospel. He's also the author of one of the greatest songs ever written, Amazing Grace, a wretched drunken slave trader transformed. Another brief example, uh, and probably a little bit more current, 
um, is many of you remember the Watergate scandal and one of the Watergate seven, one of President Nixon's most loyal advisors, he was known as the hatchet man and uh, he pled guilty to obstruction of justice and of all the Watergate cast, he was known uh, in the media and in, in Washington as the toughest and the nastiest. Well, in 1973, this man met Jesus and gave his life to Jesus Christ. His name, Charles W. Colson, also known as Chuck Colson. In fact, this was such a big deal that the LA Times wrote about it, the New York Times wrote about it, but the LA Times wrote, tough guy Colson has turned to religion. In the years following, Colson dedicated his life to Christ, to prison ministry, and to the, to the defense of the Christian worldview. He eventually died in 2012. His prison fellowship ministry and breakpoint ministry, which he started, continue on today. And what we see here is just very quickly, just some examples that God is in the business of saving sinners. This is what he does. And that no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. We have to think about that and realize that no one, these are examples of that. I want you to think this morning of the time that you gave your life to Christ or, or where you, when you met Jesus and really saw him or understood him uh, for who he is for the first time when God saved you. And even in this moment right now, just give thanks to God for that day, for what it is that he's done. Because as we study the story of Saul's conversion, may all of us today be thankful for how God has saved us. I want, just think now of all that God has saved you from. I don't think we know the half of it. Some we know, right? Some we can say, I know he saved us from this and this, but what has he saved us from that we don't even know? The conversion of Saul is one of the most powerful conversion stories in the history of Christianity. And God has preserved it for us for a reason. He's preserved it for us. So let's just pray and ask God to lead and guide us as we go into this text. Lord God, thank you so much for your saving grace, for the mercy that you have bestowed on each one of us who have met you, Jesus, and have then given our lives to serve you. We just thank you, Lord, for the saving grace, for the saving gospel, and for the fact that you save sinners. This is what you do. And Lord, may we, as we look at this text May we learn from it. May we, may we uh, see you for who you are. May we be in awe of it, in awe of you. And we thank you again in Jesus' holy name. Lead us and guide us. Amen. I want to start with a very, very brief background of the book of Acts. If you listen, if you go back in the series, again, online, there's much more background information in that first message, but I just want to give you at least uh, some, some brief idea. This book was written by Luke. Uh, it was written in the mid-60s AD. It was written after his gospel was written, so he wrote the gospel of Luke, but we, it was also written, uh, we think, before Paul's death. It's written in the genre of biblical narrative, 
And, and so that will impact how we interpret our, our, our hermeneutic. And so you'll see that as we go through. The audience for this book was Christians or the church. It's also written as an apologetic book because Luke, who, who's the writer, he's writing it and he's saying, this is a true story. He's saying, this is, this is the story or the account of the church. It all happened. And he, and he lists several numerous eyewitness accounts. And he's doing that on purpose. So if we go back to Acts chapter 7, um, that's the stoning of Stephen. We walked through that whole story. And then in chapter 8, we learned and, and looked at how Philip, uh, talked about Philip and the spread uh, of the gospel to Samaria. And now the focus of Luke, which is why we kind of stopped there. Now the focus of Luke moves to the story of Saul, who later becomes the apostle Paul. So the first thing we see here is that Saul is at war with God and his church. Look at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he didn't care, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul was breathing threats and murder against the church, the followers of Christ. So what we see here really is that the persecution of the church is Saul's full-time vocation. Now, this is pretty much what he has committed his life to. And the reason that the high priest is mentioned and the letters are mentioned, because again, this is the word of God. All of these things are in there intentionally. And Luke is a very specific writer. He's telling us these things because he wants us to understand that there is an authority of the Jewish leaders that Paul is going in or Saul is going in. And I'm going to do my best not, not to mix up Saul and Paul throughout this whole Thing, but I probably will a couple times. So the letters give Saul the authority to arrest Christians. Now this authority extends to Damascus, which is where Saul is going. And Damascus is about 150 miles from Jerusalem. That's not real close. And, and it's actually part of the Roman province of Syria. So he's going into the Roman province of Syria, 150 miles from Jerusalem to find Christians and arrest them. And he's doing so under the authority of Jerusalem. Now the way there that you see that reference to the way, that's a, that's a reference to the early description of Christians. And, and we see that appearing several times in uh, the book of Acts. And just, just so you know what that is in reference to. And that phrase, bound to Jerusalem, is also important because it means that the Christians that Saul will arrest, they will have to answer to the Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So what we need to understand right here is that this persecution is not from the Romans, this is Jewish persecution. This was the Jewish leaders. So what we see here, Saul really is on a religious mission. He really was like a, a modern day fervent activist. 
And he's punishing those Christians who are straying from the rule of the governing Jewish leaders. If you're going to go outside the bounds of the Jewish leaders, I'm coming for you. And he was sincere in his zeal. We need to remember this. He was very sincere in his zeal, but he was wrong. Saul believed that he was doing a righteous thing. We can't, we can't miss this or, 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 or put our own thoughts into this. He, he thought what he was doing was righteous. He was under the leadership of the Jewish uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem, and he, was, and he was doing what they wanted. But he was wrong. He was sincerely wrong, which shows that you can be. Second, we see that Saul was confronted by the risen Christ. Verse three, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, so he's not yet there, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So, so, you know, just kind of imagine what's going on here. Saul had his papers, right? He had his mission. He had his crew with him. He had his zeal, you know, his passion. And as he approached the city of Damascus, he's probably imagining, all right, I'm going to go get some Christians, bring them, I'm going to take care of some business here. And a blazing light from heaven stopped him in his tracks. Now, this conversion story of Saul is told here in chapter 9, but, and it's told by Luke pretty much. But then when you go later in the book of Acts, you're going to see in chapter 22, and then you're going to see also in chapter 26, that it's also told more from Paul's perspective and to different audiences for a little bit of a different reason. So three times in this book, we have his conversion story. And Acts 22 tells us that it was midday when this happened, when the blazing light appeared. So it's noontime, when really... You know, the, the, what, what you see here is that this bright light that is shining and stopping Saul is really outshining the midday sun. That's intentional. It's like, it's like God is saying right from the beginning, I'm going to prove to you that the sun at its brightest is no match for the glory of God. But this is not simply a weather phenomenon. Right, this is not just nature, which is, I think, how this would be explained today. Right, this kind of thing happened. Right, we'd have a whole news story of exactly what happened, and it would be all natural, and no way would this be in any way explain anything in the supernatural. But Jesus himself is literally stopping Saul cold in his tracks. John chapter 1 says that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. First John 1, written by the same apostle John, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Saul is seeing this light firsthand. He's confronted by the true light of the world. And then we see that Christ brings conviction to Saul, verse four, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul here falls to the ground due to the blinding light. He literally cannot stand 
in the light. He cannot stand in the unapproachable light. You know where that phrase comes from? It comes from the apostle Paul when he wrote 1 Timothy 1. He's, he's thinking back. If you, if you don't understand the conversion of Saul, you'll miss a lot of his writing because so much of his writing refers back to what he experienced when he saw Jesus. And when he says the unapproachable light in 1 Timothy 1, he knows what that means because he's seen it before him. And then he hears a voice, and it's the voice of Christ himself. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Jesus is asking a question, but he knows the answer. Right? We know that. Right? It's Jesus. He's not looking for information from Saul. The question is for Saul. Saul, you need to consider what's happening here. Jesus already knows. What he's doing is he's bringing conviction on Saul. And what he's saying is, Saul, you are not engaged in righteous mission. What you're doing is not righteous. You think it is. You think because you have these papers, you think because the Jewish leaders are behind you that what you're doing is righteous before God. And I'm here to tell you it's not. But in this moment, Saul really has no idea what's going on in this moment. He doesn't really know who's talking yet. But what Jesus is saying is, you're doing this to me. Why are you persecuting me? Then we see next that Christ reveals himself to Saul, verse 5. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Saul answers the question with another question. He didn't get that memo. You know, you don't do that. You know, especially to Jesus, right? Who are you, Lord? In other words, it's like Paul or Saul has come to the realization that God is before him, but and, and, he, and he has this, uh, this understanding that something very supernatural is happening. But who is this? Who is this? And listen to the answer that Jesus gives. First two words, he says, I am. I am Jesus. But there's power in the first two words. For Paul a studied uh, Pharisee, he would know. I am. I am Jesus. And that's all it takes. When you're confronted by the presence and the glory and the words of the risen Christ, and he says to you, I am Jesus, no more words are necessary. Saul knows he has met God face to face here. Now, there are two realities of revelation that hit Saul here in this moment. And I want to give them to you so we don't miss them when we understand them. First is that Jesus Christ is alive. He, he has, he's been hit with this reality. Saul has been on a mission. We just saw in chapter 7. In the, in the stoning of, of Stephen, right? Saul's been on a mission killing Christians because he believes they're liars. He believes they're blasphemers. He believes they're wrong. And one of the biggest things they're wrong about is Jesus. 
But here Jesus is right before him, and he's not dead. He is very much alive, just as the apostles and these followers have been saying. You know, it's interesting, later in 1 Corinthians 9, the apostle Paul wrote, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And again, what's he talking about? Have I not seen when he's writing to the church in Corinth? He, he, he's referring back to, I, I know what I'm talking about. He's referring to this day. He knows he has seen the risen Christ. You know, we need to understand something. When you look at the apostle Paul, his view, this encounter with Jesus for, uh, for Paul. And I mean, Paul, after he was, his name was changed for Paul, it was as real for him as Peter's uh, seeing Jesus and the risen Jesus. In fact, the way Paul saw it is that he saw the risen glorified Christ. And it's knocked him to the ground as a result. And, and then we see the second reality here. It's not just that Jesus is alive. He's getting that loud and clear. But Christ is the one being persecuted. Saul has now just realized that the people he's persecuting belong to Jesus. That's a problem for him now. It's no longer, uh, you know, God and, and, and Jesus and that's it. That's not only his problem. His problem are the people. They're his. And to persecute them, to persecute the church, is to persecute Christ himself. And no wonder later in his life you would see so much writing from Paul about the unity of, 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 uh, that, that we have as believers with Christ, Christ and his people. Because Paul, Paul realized this on the Damascus road when he came face to face with the fact that Christ is the one being persecuted. So we have those realities that, we all, that, that came and hit Saul. Now we continue to go on and, and, and we see that Jesus calls Saul into mission and service to Christ's kingdom work. We see that there. Uh, starting at verse 6 and basically through verse 9. Jesus is not simply saving Saul here. He's doing more. He's calling him into service and to mission. See, there really is, we, we need to understand something about, about making a profession of faith in Christ. There really is no separation of, I'm going to make a profession of faith in Christ, and then I'll really think and pray about serving him. There, there, to, to do that, to profess Christ, is to basically sign up for service and mission. And that's what's happening here with Saul. Notice verse 6, the command, rise and enter the city. You will be told what to do. You'll be told what to do. Here, here, 10 minutes ago, five minutes ago, Saul was in charge. Saul was running the show. He had his own crew. He had his papers. He was going in there to do some, some damage. And now he is knocked to the ground. And the command to him is go into the city and you'll be told what to do. Jesus is not looking for Saul's input here. He's not saying, let's talk about, I really want to know what you think. I really want to know what you feel. 
No. Saul will be told what to do. He will not be consulted. He will not be asked for his insight. He will be told what it is that he needs to do because Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord. And he is making that clear here to him. And notice verse 7, Saul's murderous crew, who 10 minutes ago were ready to conquer and pillage, are now scared stiff and speechless. They don't know what is going on. And you see more of that when you read the other accounts in 22 and and 26. So now verse 8, Saul got up. He's blinded. Scripture tells us he could not see anything. I mean, this isn't one of those, you know, where I, I just can't see for a few minutes. Wait till my eyes adjust. You know, this, he, he can't see a thing. And he's led by the hand into Damascus. This is not the entrance he imagined. When he left Jerusalem, that is not what he pictured. This is not what he thought would happen. That he would be led by the hand, blinded, into Damascus, Saul has been humbled by God himself. And then we see in verse 9, these three days of consecration and transformation, Saul's entire worldview, his entire mission in life, his understanding of authority, his understanding of who God is, all of it will be changed. All of it is about to completely change. And no, those three days are, are not a coincidence. It's not a, it's not a coincidental three days. Saul is going to spend three days in darkness. No light, no food, no drink. And during that time, he will be transformed and changed into a new person. And he's going to have a new mission. Just as Jesus spent three days in darkness Saul will spend 3 days in darkness in some manner and I don't I don't fully understand it to be able to explain it but in some manner Jesus is making it so that Saul can identify with his savior and lord an incredible incredible account of what happened here now I'm going to stop with the narrative here and we're going to pick up with that narrative next week. But what I want to do now is I want to turn to some application and I want to turn to some response for all of us. What can we learn? What can we apply? What can we, how can we take these truths, this text and really make it meaningful for us? What we've seen here today, there really is so much, so much here. I only have time to share a few, but the first one is what can we learn about true Biblical conversion. What can we learn about true biblical conversion? Well, here's what I have written here and I'll explain it. True conversion is not determined by what is said when first professing faith in Christ. It is determined by how you respond to the lordship and reign of Christ over your daily life. I want to say that again. True conversion is not determined by what is said when first professing faith in Christ. It's determined by how you respond to the lordship and the reign of Christ over your life daily. I think as modern evangelicals, one of the things that we have focused on way too much is what people say when they first profess Christ. 
and we try to, try to get them to say certain things. What we should instead focus on are, are really how people are living their lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. What did Paul say here? Nothing. He didn't ask Jesus into his heart. He didn't raise his hand. He didn't walk forward. He didn't sign a card. He didn't do anything like that. He just submitted himself. He saw Jesus, responded to Jesus, and submitted himself to the life and to the person and to the lordship of Christ. He saw Christ. He heard Christ. And he believed in faith. And, but the belief was expressed. Well, how was it expressed? It was expressed through submission of his life to King Jesus. And, and the first part of that submission was he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. Go into the city and you're going to be told what to do. We're going to pick up with that next week. We'll see how this, how this plays out. You know what this means for Saul? It means no more orders from Jerusalem. This is what I mean. His whole life is about to change. There's, there, there, his, he has papers. He's been ordered. He's, he's, got a peop, he's got a group of people that are pretty powerful to report to when he goes back. But if he's going to do this, if he's going to commit his life to Christ, that has to be over. See, this is the old is gone, the new has come. My loyalty and my service is now only to King Jesus. That's what's happening here for Saul. I think for us as, again, modern day Christians living in the world that we've lived in for the past, you know, 30 to 40, 50 years even, we, we have to understand what true biblical conversion looks like. And ultimately what we see is that it is something that God does. We don't do it. We don't do it. And when we try to get people to do something that we want them to do, we start to think we're doing it. You want to know one of the biggest temptations that I have to avoid as a pastor is trying to get people to say what I want them to say. And that we see here is not at all what happened with Saul. I think also for parents, we, we need to not measure, not measure the authenticity of our kids' faith by something they said years ago. We need to measure it by how they submit themselves to the lordship of Christ and his word and his truth in the here and the now. It is very appropriate for a parent who has an eight-year-old and the eight-year-old says, I'm a Christian, to hold them to what that means to live as an eight-year-old committed to Christ. If you're not doing that, you should be. Don't point them back to something that they prayed years ago or said. Point them to the fact that in the here and now, they need to express that faith in how they live and how they respond to you as their parent. These are, these are ways that we help the gospel be understood in a more biblical way. What can we learn about evangelism? What can we learn about evangelism through this? Well, our evangelism needs to confront people with the lordship and rule of the glorious risen Christ. Our evangelism needs to confront people, the world, with the lordship and rule of the glorious risen Christ. That is exactly what happened here to Saul. 
And I want to ask you a question. So if you're a note taker, take, you know, just kind of relax from taking notes. Because the note takers are like, no, come on. I want, I want, I want to just, I want you to just take this in. But this question, do you believe that Jesus is glorious? Amen. Do you believe that? Then here's what we need to do. All of us. We need to stop trying to market Jesus as if he is the newest as seen on TV infomercial product. You know, like I have a deal for you. If you give your life to Christ now, you not only get this, but you'll get this too. Jesus does not need us to market him or advertise him. I, and I, I'm a business major. I mean, I went to school for this. I, I, I'm not like ignorant to, to what these principles are. And I, and I live them and I understand them in the business world. But he's not looking for marketers or advertisers. He's looking for witnesses. Witnesses. Witnesses who testify. What do we testify? That's what witnesses do, right? Witnesses testify. We made this point really clear in the whole first part of this book when we studied it. Witnesses testify. What are we testifying to? We're testifying to the power and the glory and the splendor of Jesus Christ. Paul was a powerful evangelist. But he was powerful because he believed wholeheartedly in the glory of of King Jesus. Because he, this experience, what he saw here this day convinced him and it convinced him over and over as he gave his life to Jesus. So those, those the, the, uh, as witnesses, we, we need to be those who are in awe of him under his lordship and are bringing that glorious lordship to others. This is what Jesus wants, witnesses. Saul Met Jesus. Remember what we talked about in 1 John. What we have seen and heard. Right? 1 John, that which we have seen and heard. Saul saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. And he was never the same. You see, our problem isn't that Jesus is not Glorious. He is glorious, right? Our problem in our evangelism is that our faith is too small. It's too weak. We actually think something. Stay with me on this. We really think that Jesus needs our help to look good. May God forgive us. That's a lie. I have to remind myself of that. Mark, Jesus doesn't need you to make him look good. He is good. Our problem in evangelism is not technique. Our problem is power. It's a power problem. And there is incredible power when we allow the power and the presence of the risen Christ to be seen by other people. That's what we need to do as witnesses. We testify to it and we say, this is Jesus. This is who he is. And we let them respond to him. Think about how you pray 
for those who are lost. We all have loved ones who are, who are lost, and we pray for them, right? We pray. We ask God to save them. We want them to be saved. But let me encourage you to pray in, in maybe a different way than, than maybe you're praying. Maybe, maybe you already are doing this, but we need to ask the glorious Lord Jesus to reveal himself to them in all of his power and splendor. Because we believe something. See, you won't pray this way unless you believe it. You will pray this way because you believe that if they come face to face with the power and the presence of Jesus, they'll never be the same. And this is, this is why Paul was so powerful. Because this happened to him. I mean, even when you pray that, you can... You can you can tell the Lord, you can say, Lord, I, I know, I know, Lord God, if you, if you do that, if you show yourself to them and they see you in your glory and in your splendor, they will never be the same because no one can behold the glorious Lord Jesus and remain the same. But see, here's the key. We have to believe that. We have to believe that. We have to have faith that the glorious risen Christ is enough. That's, that's what we need. We need, we, need to, we need to see him and we need to say he is enough. And, and if, I can just, if I can just help people see how glorious Jesus is, he'll do the rest. He'll do the rest. Paul saw and heard the risen Christ and he was never the same. And he responded by submitting his life to the Lordship of Christ. So powerful. Very, very powerful. Final question. It's a question of salvation. I'll start with the, the negative side of it. Uh, the question of salvation is not if Jesus is Lord and King. Right? He is Lord and King. It's not, it's not if. Amen? We're we on the same, or we're just making sure we're on the same page with that. Or I got to restart. You're going to be here longer. You don't want that. Question is not if Jesus is Lord and King, He is Lord and King. Here's the question Will you submit to His Lordship and kingly rule? This is the question. This is a question for all of us. As believers, as believers who have been saved and changed and transformed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, how could we not wake up every day saying, Lord God, I just want to submit to your rule and your reign. Your will be done. You're my king. You're the one I'm loyal. I, I'm not taking orders from Jerusalem. I'm not, I don't, it's not the papers I got there. It's you. Where do you want me? What do you want? How do you want it done? But maybe, maybe you're here today and you've never done that. Maybe you've never submitted your life to the lordship and the rule of Jesus. I want to I encourage you and invite you to do so today, to joyfully submit. And again, I don't, I'm not going to even try to give you, you know, specific words that you got to say because... It, it's really something between you and God, but, but like Saul, I, I pray that you have, you have seen him for who he is 
today as we've walked through this. And, and if that's the case, if maybe you've seen him in a way you've never have, just tell him that today. Just say, Lord, I, I, I've seen you in a different, different way today, and, and, and I want to submit my entire life to you. I want you to be my Lord and, and my Savior. And, and part of that is going to be that Jesus and, and the Spirit of God are going to show you that you must repent of your sin and then trust in him, Christ, alone for salvation and that he alone is Lord and King. I started by asking you about the time that you were saved, the time that you saw Jesus for who he is. Think back again to that. What a day that was. Even right now, just in your heart, just thank him for saving you. Thank him for stopping you in your tracks and revealing his glory to you. So you might say, well, you don't, you don't, you don't know, Pastor. I, I mean, it wasn't like I was on my way to Damascus to kill Christians. All right. The, the reality is maybe that's not what we were doing, but we were still in rebellion against God, all of us. And without Jesus stopping us, revealing himself to us and saving us, we would be condemned to an eternity apart and away from him in hell. Something that, that obviously we, we don't want. So that's why we are so thankful for what it is that God has done through Christ. So thank him. Thank him for saving you. Thank him for revealing his glory to you. He is Jesus and he alone is the one who has saved us. And he is so glorious. I wanted to close with this text before we close our worship in just singing and worshiping Christ. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a wonderful account of your power and glory for the Apostle Paul stopped in his tracks and made new. Thank you for the saving grace of God for all of us. Help us, Lord, to even today to be reminded of just how glorious you are and to go forward in our lives seeking to testify as witnesses to the glory, the power, and the splendor of our King to the world around us. And as we pray for those who are lost, that we love, Lord, what we pray for, what we ask for, is that you would reveal yourself to them for who you are, that they would see you in all of your glory, in all of your splendor, and then they would fall to their knees just like Saul did and commit their lives to serving and worshiping you because there is no greater way to live than to live in service to Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. Continue to work in us today. In your holy name, amen.